Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 568th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is aiming to improve access to adequate food for the working poor. We're talking with Michael McMahon about the Fresh Food Collab. Michael graduated from State University of New York at Buffalo with a bachelor's degree in environmental design and Arizona State University with a master's degree in urban planning. For 30 years, he has been the owner of AEC, a commercial landscaping company specializing in native plant salvage and revegetation. Michael is the founder of the community garden Agave Farms in Phoenix and a nonprofit urban farming education. His nonprofit partnered with other organizations to initiate the Fresh Food Collab as a response to economic impacts of COVID-19 and fill the growing need of adequate food in our community. Welcome to the show today, Mike. Are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. You know, it's it's not often you, you're able to uh, look back uh, introspectively at, uh, at what you've been doing. It seems like you're just always in the middle of something. But <laughs> right. I, I, I realized that I, I did have a degree in planning, and, and I am an advocate of planning and goal setting completely. But as I look at my life, I, I, I realize I'm more a uh, product of spinoff and serendipity. So while I was uh, working on my master's degree at ASU, I worked as a landscaper, and I worked for a company that uh, that started salvage of native plant material, trees, digging trees and boxing trees and cactus. I also worked for a company doing irrigation, one of the oldest uh, golf course irrigation companies in the world. So by coincidence, I kind of learned, learned my craft in the field. When I got out of school, I worked for a short stint at Dames & Moore, which is an international planning and engineering firm. I had my eyes wide open to a lot of, uh, of planning, but uh, I got kind of pulled back into landscaping. By then, I had already had seven or eight years of uh, experience, and I, was, I had more expertise in that. So we built uh, one of the largest 
uh, companies in town. We spread over to California. We did. We had about 700 employees, and uh, we were doing roughly 50 million in sales, doing full commercial landscape work. Wow! Uh, about five years. Yeah, about five years ago, I was approached by some people who had a large. 17-acre piece of property and just uptown in Phoenix, right on Central Avenue. And the idea that I came up with there was to uh, to have a nursery. But uh, as it turns out, the zoning wasn't completely set for just a nursery. So I ended up creating a community garden. So we're the first of its type, I think, in Phoenix. And community garden was something I had to educate myself on, you know, I had to ask myself, well, what does that actually mean? So that's when I really started. Although as a kid, I I grew vegetables and my father, you know, pulled me into all kinds of uh, gardening projects. Realistically, I really started that urban farming concept only about five years ago. And we tried to uh, farm and sell our product off at farmer's markets and to local restaurants and, uh, I realized, my God, that is a very, very difficult business. <laughs> right. Um, and it's not something you go into on a scale of, of 17 acres uh, right off the bat. And uh, so it was a big, big learning curve for me. And again, by chance, as we were uh, going through that process, we started to make the space available for other nonprofits to use as a venue. So I started to meet different people who were operating schools in the neighborhood and uh, domestic violence shelters and homeless shelters. And we were letting them use the facility for fundraising. But we also had the Arizona Citrus Festival, the Arizona Honey Festival. We had a lot of different events. We set it up so we could uh, handle crowds of about 1,200 people. And uh, we, we had everything from women empowerment groups to yoga groups using the space and and so I, I, my eyes were kind of open to, for the really kind of for the first time, to some of our social issues going on and food in general. I, you know, never tried to market food or grow food before. And, you know, I, I realized that it wasn't as easy as I thought when I first started. Right. Uh, and what that, that kind of pulled me into starting our nonprofit. I realized that one central space for one garden wasn't enough. Uh, <laughs> You know, the reality is people don't want to, you know, commute across town. You know, Phoenix is really spread out. And there's a lot of these facilities for the shelters and schools were, you know, located quite a distance away. And and I realized that you can do this on a very small scale, which I had, if I had my choice to do it all again, I would have started on a very small quarter acre scale to learn, learn it as a hobby first. But it, it allows me now to go back and do it on a small scale, anywhere anywhere from a quarter acre to one acre. And and so with the new company, uh, the new organization is Urban Farming Education, uh, that's exactly what we're doing. So that's brought us into uh, building gardens. And then when this COVID came up this year in March, just a few months ago, it seems like forever, that's when we realized that the facility was was really a perfect space for being able to repack into CSA-style boxes uh, food for food drives. And as the coalition or the collab continues to expand and grow, we're starting to now meet with lots of other farmers, uh, small urban farmers, and, and you know, I'm introducing myself to you and to 
uh, to many other uh, people who've, who've been doing this for years and realizing that as a team, as a group, that we can accomplish a lot more. So one of the two of the ladies that own their own event catering business are preparing meals and we deliver meals to the homeless or to domestic violence shelters and, and the food they create is amazing and it's all fresh. It's it's using stuff from mostly from organic gardens mm-hmm. and uh, so it's a really different quality than is normally something you would get if you were at, at one of these shelters where you're eating boxed foods. So, you know, the whole thing has been quite an experience and quite a learning process for me. Oh, you know, setting up, running businesses, starting new businesses, every single one of them I've done in 45 years has been a learning experience. Every time I get to learn something new, it's really cool. Yeah. I guess that's the cool part, but it's also the, the difficult and expensive and frustrating part too, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. I ask a question about uh, failure, which we're going to get to in a little while. That uh-huh. question is in here specifically because I started Urban Farm Nursery in 2003, and we went big, and it bit us in the butt. I ended up losing oh. 80 grand that year on that project. So I hear you. Yeah. Well, my big takeaway was well, start I- small, Greg. I started big, and I'm I'm in over two million dollars on my community garden. So wow, that's amazing. Um, I understand that. Yeah, I understand the uh, the that process quite quite a bit. Yeah, we could spend <laughs> days? Uh, days and days on all of my failures and mistakes, but it's it's the hard part is just coming up with one that's more substantial than the other. Well, there you go. So let's t- we're here today to talk about the fresh food collab. And I heard what you were doing with it. I was really motivated, very excited about it. So tell us what the Fresh Food Collab is and how it came to be. Well, it started actually because I was at Agave Farms and we had actually uh, let Lyft use our facility for one of the big music festivals across the street at Indian School Park. Uh And they would have cars coming in from one of our gates on the north side and, and doing pickup and driving through our south side. So I knew the uh, ability for having a thousand cars at a time roll through was there. We have shade houses set up. So I knew we could, you know, do some work there with large quantity of volunteers without being exposed to the sun. So the idea kind of came from the fact that as we were talking to different farmers, we realized there was so much material that was food that was going to waste. As I was kind of writing the book and and working on our website for UFE, I was learning and learning and learning more and more about farming and urban farming and all kinds of things I didn't realize I'd ever have to learn about. But um, a big thing was that came to me was I had heard statistics that as much as 30% of the food that's grown ends up in restaurants. And when you shut down all the restaurants across the country, basically across the world, you've you've just done some significant damage to the distribution network. There's right. farmers and there's there's people who raise meats that specifically distribute to restaurants. Well, what are they doing now? When we first started this thing, millions of gallons of milk were having to be destroyed and poured out. And and even as much as like a couple of weeks ago, all the cabbage out in Yuma, not all, but quite a bit of the cabbage in Yuma was being graded under. 
And the concept is pretty simple. If there's no market for the food, the farmer's not going to pay money to have it picked, to have it boxed and washed, and to have it distributed. And, you know, where are you going to distribute it to? So what we did was we contacted the Arizona uh, Food Bank Network, Alexander there, and I told them, look, I have a facility that's right downtown. What do you think? And my first concept was, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. That The food bank system has been in the U.S. for, I don't know how long, 100 years or something, and, and they do a great job. The question really is, is what could we do to help? And, uh, you know, so what we did was we became a uh, an agency, a temporary agency of St. Mary's Food Bank, number one. And then we've been contacting farmers and trying to work with them as well when there's excess plant material or plant material in vegetables mm -hmm. that could be, you know, come our way, whether it's a vegetable or meat or, or milk, you know, anything that we could put together in a CSA style box. So I, you know, immediately thought of uh, Living Green Magazine and Dory because this is kind of up her alley. I knew that she'd jump on it and she did. And mm -hmm. then we got a couple of uh, the caterers involved, Amici and the other one was uh, with Jennifer. Jennifer Johnson. And yep. Jennifer Johnson, yep. And we all realized that we could make an impact. So we've we've done about a half dozen drives already, and we've also given meals out to multiple different shelters. And it's it's a working thing. And what as we're doing it, the demand is way way out outpacing the supply for of food. Yeah. We've we started to tack on to, again, trying to use existing systems. We've been going to schools and to churches in areas that food deserts and areas that the food is, is probably more in, in need, yeah. uh, inner city areas. What we'll do is we'll bring the boxes there and we, as parents are coming in to get lunches for their child, we're handing out the food boxes or at the churches the same way. We've done a drive at Agave Farms as well. And what we're really doing is, is we're responding to two different things. One is the economic upheaval of, of people being unemployed yep. and basically people in the service industry. You know, if you're anything that has to do with people, you know, we're, we're trying to distance ourselves, right? So the travel industry, the sports industry, the restaurant industry, you know, people are suffering. And, and we see this is only getting worse until until it gets better, right? Until yeah. there's some kind of antivirus or, or uh, something happens. But in the meantime, you know, people are on unemployment, but unemployment benefits are going to start running out. And I don't know, you know, I don't think anybody knows the crystal ball of how many people will get reemployed. I yeah. see a lot of, you know, great mom-pa restaurants that aren't going to reopen and, and retail shops the same way. So, the one thing we all have in common is we have to eat food. And yeah. uh, so we have the ability, being in a central location, to actually start handing some of that food out. And we've already, with UFE, we're working with schools and uh, you know, lots of different nonprofits, uh, foster care, homeless and the disabled. So we, we already knew that there was people before this you know, pandemic started that were marginalized and, and needed help. 
But now it could be, you know, your neighbor and my neighbor. It could be anybody. Yeah. And we just uh, we just were in the right place at the right time to do it. And we moved, you know, and it, instead of sitting at home, you know, you can sit at home and, you know, the divide, the world is divided in two right now. You're, you're right or you're left and you can sit at home and you can watch the politicians spin and you can blame the other side and, and do nothing. Or you can, you know, you can come in and join and we've been getting upwards of 50 volunteers for every event and and really the impact on the volunteers is pretty uh, uh, amazing too because they you know they're saying hey you know you're finally taking some control over a situation that makes us all feel like we're a little out of control you know really in many ways you're a waste food aggregator i'm not talking about food that you're going to compost but food that maybe hasn't been picked or it's leftover from something and basically you're aggregating that into a place where you're building boxes, right? Sure. And you know, it goes really to the core, you know, why we started urban farming education. For the most part, we're substrate growers more than than we are growing in the ground because mm-hmm. we I feel like in an urban environment you have small little spaces and some of them are contaminated, the bad soil is sometimes you're growing on concrete. And so the idea is, you know, to create substrates that are ultimately better than buying fertilizers. So these substrates are coming from the waste stream, whether they're wood chips or they're Mm. dairy manure or chicken manure, kelp. You know, there's a lot of different products that come together that mix to make an amazing soil or soil amendment. So, you know, our concept is to build soil, not to grow vegetable, but to grow the soil. And and so it kind of comes down to that kind of ideal idealism or that conservative concept is to take space where it already exists People are down, you know, 80% of the population in the world now is in an urban setting. We're not in, you know, rural settings like we were 100 years ago. So, but there's there's plenty of spaces that can be impacted in what we do. And it's the same thing with, with what you're talking about here is, yes, we're trying to pull food before it hits the waste stream. Mm-hmm. Food that would no longer, you know, and, and a lot of our product is fresh. You know, that's the difference between the pantry, which which you can put canned goods and boxed goods, foods that store for quite a while, and having fresh food. And, and our thought all along with what we're doing is the idea of, of growing your own garden is to be able to get, you know, fresh food, you know, yeah. and uh, that's that's the process here. And it's it's a bit of a challenge because, as you know, fresh food only is fresh for a little while. So yeah. you're you're trying to move it from point A to point B as fast as possible without it uh, spoiling and, and going bad. And where are you coming up with this food at? Where are you sourcing the food from? Well, some of it, uh, you know, I'm buying from distributors. Uh, Peddlers and Sons have helped us out. They've given us some good pricing and and some free material once in a while. Because we are an agency of St. Mary's, we were one of the groups that they supply. It's an amazing system. If no one knows about how food banks work, there's uh, ancillary food banks throughout an an area. I think in, in our state, there's four major food banks, but there's up to a thousand different agencies. And mm-hmm. you'd consider us a an agency or a temporary agency where we're distributing it to, to people who need it. And so we, we stand in line and get some food from St. Mary's, but we've also been getting donations from some farmers and some, some bakeries. So we're 
we're always looking. That's that's the idea of the collab is to to get more and more organizations involved. You know, uh, if they're a bakery or a, a meat shop or if they're farmers. We can go out and we can get the material from them. We've worked with Hydroponic Garden Pure that has brought in big quantities of basil that we've repacked and, and handed out to people. So, you know, we really are conscious of what goes in the box where we try to really minimize or eliminate completely the junk food and the and the uh, soda products and the bottle, the plastic. I'm a very much of an enemy of the plastic bottle industry. And, you know, we've really tried to to eliminate that from the box. And we think about in a box what I would like, you know, and what I'd like is the ability to make salads and stews and casseroles. So, you know, the fresh produce being both vegetable and fruit is a great starter. But we're, we're always looking for grains, whether it's beans or rice or something, to, uh, you know, spaghetti, things that people could cook with. And this kind of is the uh, the base for that. And uh, one of these 30-pound boxes is good for a family of four for about a week, oh, nice. uh, the way we look at it. Not yeah. not maybe this one, maybe they have to buy a little bit of supplemental food depending on what they're trying to do. But part of what's, what's cool about what we're doing is because we have chefs involved, every box, they look at every box and they create some, some recipes for each box. Oh, and nice. then what we do is... We have a full-time video guy that Lorenzo is amazing, and he uh, will go into their kitchen and film them actually preparing the food. Mm-hmm. Because let's face it, not everybody knows what a parsnip is, or how would you use and a what parsnip? You do with you know, it, right. so exactly. So it's it's kind of trying to come full circle with it. They uh, they will do a uh, a cooking show that that'll last you know a few minutes to 10 15 minutes showing how to cook the stuff that's in that box and then they end up turning around and whatever that particular recipe is is one of the things we will give out when we're doing the the hot meal program to the shelters they they've given meals to some of the hospitals the hospital workers or nice. various different shelters and it's kind of that full circle type of thing and the other part of what we're doing at Fresh Food Collab is trying to do videos with which is something you've been doing for years and years and years in your podcast. But we want to do, you know, more and more gardening videos mm-hmm. and more nutrition videos and cooking videos, health and wellness videos, because I, I guess you could look, you know, you can always look for a silver lining in anything. Right. And I think part of what COVID is bringing to us is that maybe our, you know, we had a pretty good system of food distribution in this country, but there were, people being left behind. There's no question about it. And as a society, we've gone from growing our own food to, you know, buying food that's, you know, somebody else has done, uh, is grown and or it's already prepared. And so we, we really are losing touch as a, as a society with, you know, where this food comes from and, and what makes it healthy and, and how to use it. Yep. And uh, I think this gives us at least a little pause, you know, to oh, yeah. to look and say, you know, are, are there some things that we could do better as we come out of this? And I think, you know, the uh, idea of doing urban farming for people, uh, DIY or DIY, you know, do it yourself yep. is an empowering thing, you know, and, and there's a lot of benefits to that. Well, and I've been a, an advocate for decades that growing food in the cities is where it needs to happen. And... You know, it could be hydroponics or vertical gardening or tower gardens or aquaponics or growing in the ground or raised bed gardens. 
but let's return back to the victory gardens of 50 years ago and see ah, if we yes. can figure out where our food comes from and grow our own. Absolutely. And you know what? It's, it's, it seems like change always comes out of a time of crisis, right? Yep. So after World War One and the Spanish flu, after World War Two, you know, the, I think after World War One, the president actually came, I think it was Wilson that came out and, and actually asked people to grow food in their yards because, you know, the distribution system was, you know, the farming and the distribution of, of produce was uh, disrupted and, you know, the country needed a a little bit of uh, time to get it back repaired. And so this isn't something new. People have been right. growing food as yeah. long as there's been people. But what is new is the speed of change, the acceleration of change, and how we've changed our, you know, our culture. In my lifetime, you know, I've seen cell phones and laptop computers. They didn't exist, you know, when we were kids. Right. And it really seems like everything uh, and I, I never thought of myself as old until I start looking back and telling people. But, you know, when we were kids, we had a couple of pairs of shoes and a few pair, pair of pants and, and shirts. And, you know, by the time we were 12 years old, if you wanted something else, you found a way to, to work and, and make money and to buy yep. you know, some other stuff. But we're in a very disposable society. And we've seen it not just with the idea that we have way too many clothes that we can throw out, you know, when we're bored with them. But we're seeing it when when we're talking about something as basic as water. I remember when I saw the first bottled water and I just laughed, yep. thinking, who on earth would buy a bottle of water for a dollar <laughs> right. or whatever it was? Yeah. And, and yet that's what we do now. Coincidentally, it's the only water that's not really tested is the bottled water. Right. We all think that the tap water is, oh, that's not good for you, but... Tap water gets tested, you know, and and it's the same thing with with food. You know, we've seen such a migration into an urban core that, you know, people think that they can't grow it anymore. And that doesn't mean that our agriculture system is a bad system. I think, you know, we've it's amazing that that we can feed seven, almost eight billion people using new conventional methods of agriculture. So we're not we're not advocating, you know, turning the time, you know, the clock back, but there are things that can certainly be done or added to our lives to improve them. And I think growing some of your own herbs and some of your own food is one of those things. Amen to that. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Yeah, so this is a tough question because it seems like I've failed at so many different things. It's it's a hard, hard question. But what I'm trying to do is in today's conversation, because we're talking about farming and urban farming, I'm going to go back to agave farms when we started. We didn't really have a true concept, everything that went into it. So we knew we could grow stuff. So the first thing we did was we grew pumpkins. We The majority of the property was uh, pumpkins. So we, we grew about 14,000 pumpkins. I think there was 12 different variety of them. And uh, as the pumpkins were we were happy because they were actually ready for harvest. We realized, you know, we didn't really have any kind of a market for them, you know. So, right. so we ended up giving away and spending. I think that crop cost about forty thousand dollars as yep. we gave it to the zoos and the inner city schools, and then we had a big old uh, party, harvest party in the neighborhood, and invited all our neighbors, and we gave out, uh, you know, lots of carloads worth of uh, pumpkins to to them, but. 
the entire process of the farm was, I guess you would have to say from a financial perspective, it was a, uh, it was a mistake or a failure because we tried so many different things throughout that process. And, and I think the, uh, what's come out of it, though, I like to believe is, is positive and it was worth all the troubles that we've come, that I've gone through. And uh, so instead of growing our own food, now we grow for display purposes showing and what we really are doing is is uh, creating systems farming systems yeah. that are Excellent. specifically from for, for the urban environment and then we've given our space to nonprofits to grow so we have international refugees and mm-hmm. native health and native hospital and we've got multiple different schools we we've got several different entities there that are growing uh, primarily for their own sustenance. Uh, people really from all over the world who grew up gardening and, and, and it's really part of their life, you know, and so they have the ability to, to grow there and, and eat their own food there. And I think we've, I, I've learned quite a bit about the reason, and this is the, uh, the big thing, you know, why, why would you ever put a garden in? And so right. it really, up until, up until recently, I had to look back and ask myself that question, and I think I've come up with the answers, you know. And the answer is? Well, it, it's not a simple answer. So I, when I first started out there, you know, I'm a, I'm a business guy, and right. I have a, my uh, landscape company. And when I did the farm, I thought same thing. I'd do a nursery there, and I'd do a farm there, and we'd make money. Well, we didn't make money. We kept spending money. These things called weeds and grasses mm-hmm. uh, create a tremendous amount of labor. So what I was looking at, everything from a perspective of a business person is is how do you make a profit? How do you you know how do you, how do you make that P and L look good? And I thought that would be that's the only reason you would ever grow a garden. As I started to do some more analysis, I realized a return on investment was a better way to look at that that metric, that financial metric. Yes. And so the return on investment, strictly from a capital standpoint, now now that I if I were to do it all over again, I would know how to build it. And that's why we're building gardens for other people, because we've learned how not to do so many things. But I believe that the return on investment in Phoenix or in, in Arizona on a garden, and I assume it would be the same everywhere else, is, is about a year or so with three seasons, three, three to four seasons. If you're doing it right and you're you know somewhat frugal, you have to be somewhat frugal as you're doing things, that you can, in fact... Through the the process of farming, you can generate enough vegetables. And if you look at the average cost of that vegetable at the grocery store, that it eventually pays for itself. And I don't know any other hobby that does that. If you do it right, you know, gardening and farming can pay for itself. It can pay for the inputs. Does that mean you're making, is it a get rich quick thing? I tell you, if that's what you want to do, find something else. This isn't it. But so that was one thing. By working with these other nonprofits, I also realized that maybe the biggest benefit was what we call ecotherapy or horticulture therapy or dirt therapy. And I realized that's really, that's the biggest benefit. You know, if my father was a gardener his entire life, and by the time he turned 84, he just couldn't bend over and he couldn't get into the soil. And you could see kind of a life, you know, ebbing away from him at that point. The ability of spending the spring and the summer and the fall in his garden 
uh, and in growing his own stuff, you know, that kind of went away. So, you know, one of the systems we created, the Ready Go Garden system, we put these substrates in bags and we put them on tables. Oh, he was right. 88 when he died. He was 88 when he died, and he was part of that inspiration. But, you know, it was too late, you know, for him. But now I realize that, you know, elderly people, not, not and I guess I'm starting to move in that direction, that elderly direction. But for anyone who just has a back problem or just doesn't want to bend over and get on their knees, uh, you have the ability to, to grow in it on a table. So that's kind of a cool thing. The, uh, but getting back to the therapy, it's good for PTSD. It's been proven that there's chemicals in the soil that actually improve your levels of serotonin. So the physical act of going outside and getting sun and, and getting your hands dirty actually does make you feel better. And oh, so yeah. the, I, the idea of, and being connected to biology, at the end of the day, we're just one species on the planet of, of a, a million species, right? And, and, and there's a, you know, a time to, for us to all live and a time for us to die. But so as you're growing things, you're seeing that cycle of life and that's, I think that's also part of that that therapy. It's I think it's really good for people with PTSD. I think it's uh, the idea of growing sensory gardens for autistic people, and it's really for for anyone, any human. I think gardening is something that's inextricably a human thing that, uh, and I think it's something we've gotten away from. So I, that's the biggest thing that ecotherapy, but the education, you know, what we really focus in is on going to schools, really focus in on the second graders. Oh, nice. You know, it may be too, too late for our generation, but if we can really educate them uh, and, and it's not, and you know, I think Buckminster Fuller came up with the idea that teachers don't educate. What we do is provide tools and then the, the student basically learns or educates themselves with that tool. They, the, the idea is, is learning, physically learning, and making you know gardens at a school part of the curriculum. And I think that that's a very important thing because ultimately we need nutrition. I think you and I were on a panel discussion for the Sustainability Alliance, and one of the things neither of us really mentioned was 50 years ago, when when the first Earth Day in 1970 came about, the population was half of what it is now. And yes. that is just mind-boggling. Yep. They go from three and a half to seven billion people. Well, we have to have systems for growing and feeding those people. And those systems have to be healthy. And the food we eat has to be healthy. What we've seen in that 50 years is just an exponential growth of diabetes and obesity and, you know, so where, where, where did we get off the bus? Some things worked, some things didn't work. And, you know, I think the idea of gardening and why you garden, a big part of that is getting that connection. So you have ecotherapy, you have education, you have social impact. You know, if you put in a, a little garden in your yard or in your, your alley, you now have community. You have your neighbors coming by right. and you're talking to them. You actually have improved property values. You know, even though I've lost my butt over at Agave Farms, you know, the neighboring apartment complex, they charge a garden premium if you get an apartment that overlooks our farm. Do they really? And, and I, oh, yeah. So it's in, in the property, you know, property values in that area have gone up, you know, quite a bit. And the idea is that this is something that's aesthetic. People like it. it the, I think the social impact, obviously the sustenance, the ability to eat. If you like building model airplanes, that's great, you know, but 
you can't eat your model airplane, you know. So those are the real reasons that we garden. There's there's a there's a group of of, of reasons, and what I thought was the most important reason was the profitability angle is probably the least important from a from a financial standpoint mm-hmm. return on investment yes that's important but all the other benefits that are so hard to measure those are the real reasons and and it's kind of taken me that long learning from my big mistakes or or a failure to come up with that uh, epiphany that aha moment you know right. of okay that's what it's all about you know and what do you consider your biggest success I would say the basic biggest success we have is the response from converting agave farms to UFE for urban farming education and then converting that as a response to the Fresh Food Collab. And the success, it comes from all the people we've met in the community. And and that's really, it's the collaboration and all these other farmers and, and all these people who volunteered and you can see how, you know, it impacts them. And I'd say that really is the success. It's not uh, monetary, but it's uh, so much more important. Making a difference in the community. And what drives you? It changes over the years. You know, when you're a younger person, you, uh, I guess, especially in our society, we accumulate. And then mm-hmm. you start to deaccumulate as you get older and streamline. But I think what, what drives me now is the idea that there's so many different people with with a need and uh to me the solutions aren't that difficult they they just require people who care and people who uh um, want to act and so i think from my standpoint it's i think we're seeing real results and maybe when i was younger i just it wouldn't have been something i could have uh really participated in. Maybe I just needed to go through more of life's experiences to get to where I'm at. But I think that's that's really it. What drives me is the fact that there's so much to be done. And I have now with all these different experiences, I have the ability to do those things. And so I want to try to get some of those done before uh, before the lights turn off. Before your last gardening season. There you go. Yeah. There's only so many seasons in us. You know, I've started, I'm, I'm almost 60 and I've started looking at that and it's like, wow, if I look at my life in gardening seasons, I might have 10, 15, 20 left and that would be it. And that's not very many. No, no, there's, there's more behind you than there are in front of you. <laughs> right. So you got to make them, well, what you got to do is you got to use what you've learned to make them more impactful. That's, that's the bottom line. Yeah. You know, how can... How can you and how can I affect change? And really what I've come up with is uh, we all have to band together because it, it has to be collaborative. It has know, to be collaborative. To, to make a difference. I have a vision right. uh, from about 30 years ago that I, I'm the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. And here's what I'm clear about. I can't do it alone and I don't want to do it alone. What I want to do is I want to inspire people. And you're doing the same thing. You're inspiring people, yep. which is really what needs to happen. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Okay, so I'm a reader, so that's tough, but it <laughs> depends on what aspect we're talking. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to streamline that again to what we're talking about, which is farming. Mm-hmm. And I was going to give you one, but I'm going to give you two because Perfect. I, I had 30 seconds left to get it, right? So <laughs> the one that was the most impactful for me, I think, because I started off not knowing if I was a garden or a park or a 
community garden or a farm, a small farm, and that is Curtis Stone's Urban Farming. Yep. So if you are trying to grow for profit and or if you just really want to be efficient and understand the mathematics that's required and all the things that are required to do a farm for profit, then I just think his book is phenomenal. I'm going to squeeze one quick one in there, and that is, I think, was 40 Chances with the investor uh, Howard Buffett's. Oh, yes. uh, The son of the investor, Warren Buffett. And 40 Chances, basically, he came up with the idea that there's, uh, as a farmer, because he's a farmer, each farmer has about 40 seasons in them. And so you have 40 chances every year to get it right. You know, and each year you have to decide what commodity you're growing and how you're going to do it and uh, what your, where your market's going to be. And, and, and so really kind of a different way of looking at things to, to say, you know, this is how many chances you get. And as you said, you know, 15, 20 more, and that's about what we got in us. Okay. Yep. Well, we got to make them work. So those would be two books I'd recommend nice. if anybody is out there. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, since most of your listeners, I think, are farmers or farm enthusiasts or gardeners, it would be to, especially if they're starting, start small, you know, start as a hobby and really kind of learn how to do things on a small scale first, because you'll make a lot of mistakes. And I would not worry about the mistakes. The mistakes are the, you know, the the part of learning, you know, and if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. But I would definitely say start small. Every book I've read, including Curtis's and including you and I talking, it all says the same thing. Don't start too big. You know, yep. don't start trying to grow every variety of plant known to man. You know, just start and count your successes before you get on to the next thing. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You bet. And how can our listeners get a hold of you and find out more information about your urban farm education program and the collab? So our website is weareufe.org. On there, you'll see the Fresh Food Collab. You'll see all our social media handles, which is the same thing, weareufe, for Instagram, I think, and Facebook. Our local, if you're a local person to Phoenix, um, agave-farms.com is our website. And if you want to go to Instagram, it's agave farms. And we're my agave farms on Facebook. So lots of different ways to, to connect with us. Perfect. Perfect. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash we are U-F-E. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, 
Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.